Hello, listeners, and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Total Eclipse of the Heart, Part 1, where we discuss cardiopulmonary bypass for major cardiac surgery with special guest Dr. Ivan Rapchuk. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Ivan Rapchuk is a staff specialist at Prince Charles Hospital in Brisbane, Queensland. He is an associate professor at both the University of Queensland and the University of the Sunshine Coast. Having trained in both Canada and Australia, Dr. Rapchuk has a fellowship in cardiothoracic anaesthesia as well as significant personal interest in regional anaesthesia and acute pain management. He directs both the Acute Pain Management Service and Pre-Anesthetic Clinic at the Prince Charles Hospital and works privately with Northside Anesthesia. Dr. Rapchuk is also the chair of the Queensland Statewide Anesthesia and Perioperative Care Clinical Network, otherwise known as SWAPnet, and has significant interest in health system management and research. But more importantly, Dr. Rapchuk coaches the Queensland State ice hockey team and is deeply committed to advancing ice hockey within Australia. Ivan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Kate. I'm looking forward to ice hockey chat in a further episode of Deep Breath. More than happy, more than happy to return on that. Topic. We will further your cause, Ivan. I promise. <laughs> All right. So, look, Ivan, cardiopulmonary bypass is something that seems to instill fear into those who haven't had any experience with cardiac anesthesia or minimal experience, such as myself. But it's actually not as complex as everyone thinks, right? Look, there is no doubt that uh, entering the cardiac operating theater can be very confronting. You have an anesthetic machine that is often on the opposite side of the patient that you're used to. You have a transesophageal echo machine, multiple infusion pumps, and a large cardiopulmonary bypass machine sitting there, not to mention a cardiac surgeon to deal with. But the heart-lung machine is actually pretty straightforward, and all it does is let the surgeon operate on a motionless and bloodless field. And because we're replacing the patient's own heart and lungs, the bypass machine needs to be able to do a few things that the patient's heart and lungs can do, as well as a few extra other functions as necessary for the surgery to happen. Alrighty, let's start talking about this circuit. Now, Ivan, what are the important parts of the bypass machine that are necessary to enable effective cardiopulmonary bypass? Well, the first thing we have is we have the circuit. So we have the extracorporeal bypass circuit. This houses the blood being drained from the patient and allows for this blood to be oxygenated and pumped back into the patient. We have a gas exchanger that oxygenates the venous blood and removes carbon dioxide. We have a pump, which is the blood pump that provides a constant blood flow back to the patient. We have a cardioplegia pump and circuit. And this is where the heart-stopping cardioplegic solution is sent back to the myocardium so it remains alive but still for the operation to occur. We have a heat exchanger or heater cooler which can warm and cool the blood as needed. And we have a cardiotomy reservoir which allows for collection of blood from the sterile field that can then be reintroduced to the circulating blood volume. So can I ask a question about the cardiotomy reservoir? Is that a little bit like uh, a cell saver type situation where you kind of, except it can be fed straight back into the circulating blood? In in a way, that's exactly what it is. You have drainage of blood from the field in the patient into a large plastic bowl, Mm -hmm. which is then fed back through a pump back to the patient. And just as the um, cell saver blood has substances put into it to maintain its anticoagulation, we'll talk about in a second, for the cardiotomy reservoir, you have heparin put in to yeah. maintain its anticoagulation. Okay. And that's sort of continuous, is it? Like, 
as in it's not just done at the end, like it's done continuously. Continuously. Great. Thank you. So, Ivan, walk us through what happens to the blood after it's drained from the patient's circulation and into the bypass circuit. Well, the blood passes from the superior vena cava, inferior vena cava, or right atrium through a large bore venous cannula into the venous reservoir. Now, the size of the cannula is important because this is a passive drainage in the majority of situations. So the old Hagen-Poiseuil equation, where the cannula radius has a large effect on drainage ability, um, comes into play. So the venous cannula and tubing is much larger, relatively, than the arterial tubing. In general, the blood, the drainage of the blood from the right side of the heart is passive, although we can apply suction to it to aid drainage in certain situations, which we'll talk about later on, such as a femorally placed central venous cannula for minimally invasive surgery. The blood then flows into the venous reservoir, which is essentially, as mentioned, a large plastic-covered collecting bowl. And this ensures that the blood then will pass into the remainder of the circuit without any air bubbles. And it also allows the addition of any medications or fluids to the circuit without disturbing the laminar flow of the arterial line and the sampling of blood to occur as well. The blood's drawn out of the reservoir by a blood pump. And in most centres in Australia, this is a roller pump. And it's then pushed back through the arterial tubing, back to the patient through the arterial cannula. Okay, so Ivan, why does the blood first like go through the blood pump before any of the other parts or components of the machine? Well, the pump needs to generate a pressure. It needs to generate the blood pressure and the blood flow needed for its passage through the rest of the the components. So while passive drainage occurs from the patient to the machine, you actually have to forcefully move the blood from machine through the components back to patient. Okay, that makes sense. So how exactly does this blood pump work? Well, the ideal pump needs to generate a blood flow in keeping with the uh, Hagen-Poiseuil equation, where in basic terms, flow rate of the blood equals pressure divided by resistance. There's a couple of important things that the pump has to be able to do. So you have to be able to generate variable blood flow and pressure against a variable resistance. That's the afterload and all the different tubings that may be coming into play with the patient. Mm. It has to be made of biocompatible materials, so that it doesn't activate the blood too much. We have to avoid creating areas of stasis or turbulent blood flow. We need to adjust for different sizes of the extracorporeal tubing. It's got to be easy to control and avoid shattering blood cells, hemolysis. And we also have to make sure we require a low priming volume. This is the volume of crystalloid, generally, that we use to circulate through the pump. Now, there's two types of pumps in the modern bypass era. There's roller pumps and centrifugal pumps. Roller pumps have a length of tubing in a curved laneway or raceway, and this is then compressed by a rotating circular roller with two arms at opposite ends that compress and push the blood through the tubing. Compression of the tubing by the roller arm permits forward flow, and roller pumps are good because they can produce pulsatile flow. They also allow a constant delivery of blood volume despite changes in afterload, so it's not afterload dependent. The third thing about roller pumps is they're relatively cheap. Blood flow, however, depends on the internal diameter of the tubing, the rotation rate of the rollers, and the diameter or size of the pump head. In real time, though, it's the rotation rate of the rollers that affects flow, as the other two are pretty much static and the same. So then there's centrifugal pumps. Centrifugal pumps are either veined impellers 
or a set of smooth plastic cones or discs within a plastic casing. Now these are magnetically coupled with an electric motor, which rotates these discs quite rapidly, generating a centrifugal force to the blood, which then is brought in and pumped out to the body. The centrifugal force is converted to kinetic energy, which provides the flow or the potential energy, which then gives pressure to the blood being pumped out. In the clinical setting, we calculate centrifugal force using an equation where the mass of the blood multiplied by the radius of the pump head multiplied by the rate of revolutions equals centrifugal force. Now these pumps are non-occlusive and they're afterload dependent. So any significant change in resistance or pressure at the outlet will affect blood flow. The non-occlusive nature of these pumps prevents the pump from generating excess pressure and also reduces the risk of circuit rupture. In Australia, and actually in the majority of the world, roller pumps are used by far and large as the main type of pump for cardiopulmonary bypass. Is there a reason for that, Ivan? In reality, the reason is twofold. One is they're easier to use and they're cheaper. Fair enough. However, roller pumps can damage the blood. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the majority of pumps that are going to be used for long-term use, for example, in ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, they're often used for a week or so in a patient. And the majority of those pumps are actually centrifugal in nature. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. Yeah. So I have a question. I'm just trying to visualize this. So for some reason, you know, like Skeletrix electric car sets, and you've kind of got, you know, like a, a, you know, you said a raceway before. So I kind of got an image of that. And then like a car, which is kind of the two wheels on each end to be like the two arms of the little roller pump kind of pushing the blood forward. Is that kind of what we're talking about? It's very much like that. Mm. And the perfusionist at the beginning of the case will actually take the tubing and feed it into Mm. the raceway. And you can see the two ends of the roller pump, almost like two fists rotating Mm. around, squishing Mm. the blood in the tubing and pushing it forward. Yeah. Okay. I have a younger brother. I don't know why, but it just went. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So after the blood passes through the pump, then what happens, Ivan? After the blood passes through the pump, the blood goes through a heat exchanger, and this allows it to control the temperature of the patient. Cooling of the patient allows for a safety margin if something ever went wrong. And most of the time, bypass surgery is conducted under systemic hypothermia, somewhere between 28 and 34, 32 degrees. Sometimes we need to do it under deep hypothermia in the range of 16 to 20 degrees if we need periods of really low blood flow or even deep hypothermic circulatory arrest. Arrest. Uh, This would be seen in something like aortic arch surgery. From the heat exchanger, the blood then passes into the gas exchanger. Now, Ivan, in my own research preparing for this for this episode, I read that gas exchange in the bypass circuit, it's much less efficient than that in the human lung. Why is that? Well, gas exchange obeys Fick's law of diffusion, where the amount of gas transferred is directly proportional to diffusion area, a diffusion constant, the partial pressure difference, and then inversely proportional to the membrane thickness. In the bypass gas exchanger, the area for diffusion is far less than the human lung. It's about somewhere between 1.7 to 3.5 meters squared versus what we all remember, that analogy of our own lungs, mm. about 100 meters, meters squared, the analogy mm. being the tennis court. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right? So the distance for diffusion across the semi-permeable membrane is also much greater. So it's about 100 microns versus 10 microns, which is in the human lung. Mm. So the surface area is less. 
the diffusion distance is greater, so its gas exchange isn't as effective. So how do we overcome this? Well, we provide a much higher partial pressure difference of both oxygen and carbon dioxide to compensate for the reduced surface area mm -hmm. and the diffusion distance. Now CO2, the pressure gradient's obviously lower, but the artificial lung material is very permeable to CO2, mm -hmm. so it's not an issue. Mm -hmm. Of note is that the use of inhaled anesthetic gases can occur through the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, and if desired, this would occur in the oxygenator as well. I wondered about that. I wondered about that. So once gas exchange occurs, the oxygenated blood finally passes through more tubing that contains an arterial filter, and then passes through the arterial cannula back into the patient. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I just want to point out was the order in, this, in which this occurs and why it's critical. Blood always goes through the heater cooler first before the oxygenator to prevent the formation of micro bubbles. Mm. If blood was oxygenated first and then heated or cooled, the solubility of oxygen would change and oxygen could come out of solution as micro bubbles, which could be sent to the patient's brain. So always heat or cool first, then oxygenate. It's funny, like I never would have thought of it of my own accord, but when you explain it like that, it actually makes a lot of sense. So that's really good to know. Yeah, I think if we were closer to the primary, maybe we would have actually considered <laughs> physiological principle. Yeah. That's true. I, I also had a question, is it possible to control the oxygenation at all? Or is it just sort of give a lot of oxygen? And Look, there's, there's actually a lot of um, conflicting opinion in the literature about mm. this. So yes, you can control the oxygenation. You can put as much or as little in as you want. Um, in addition, you can control the sweep of the pump, as they mm. call it, to remove as much or as little CO2 as you want. Mm. So a lot of people put in a lot of oxygen because mm. it gives a safety margin if something ever went wrong. Mm. However, the belief is out there that by putting in too much oxygen, we might be creating a lot of oxygen-free radicals mm -hmm. and frying tissues that are in those watershed areas. Mm -hmm. So areas of the brain or the kidneys, mm -hmm. most importantly. That's really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think I'm finally starting to understand bypass <laughs> after several years of anesthesia <laughs> and a cardiac term at Ivan's Hospital. Okay. So um, it just, I guess it's just a series of different components that replicate as closely as possible the conditions in the body that the heart and lungs usually generate. Now, before we start talking about different cases, we'll have to pause as we've run out of time. Ivan, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to listening to you further in Total Eclipse of the Heart Part 2. My pleasure. It's been a really interesting and technical chat on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com, and you can find our podcast on nearly all podcast directories. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee or you have a topic you think would be high yield for the part two exam, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.